Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer, and my guest today is Michael Dowd. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people. I've done nearly 300 of them now, and uh, if you'd like to check out the archives, go to batgap.com, and you'll see them uh, categorized in various ways under the past interviews menu. There's also a donate button there, and the show is made possible by the support of generous viewers. Reverend Michael Dowd is a best-selling evolutionary theologian and pro-future evangelist whose work has been featured in the New York Times, LA Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, Newsweek, Discover, and on television nationally. His bridge-building book, Thank God for Evolution, was endorsed by six Nobel Prize-winning scientists, noted skeptics, and by religious leaders across the spectrum. Michael and his science writer wife, Connie Barlow, have spoken to more than 2,000 groups of course, across North America since 2002. And they've done that because they live primarily out of a camper van and they're <laughs> just on the road continuously. Michael has delivered two TEDx talks and a program at the United Nations. In 2010, he interviewed 38 Christian leaders across the theological spectrum, all of whom embrace an ecological evolutionary worldview and are committed to a healthy future as part of a series entitled The Advent of Evolutionary Christianity. Most recently he interviewed 55 experts on climate change, peak oil and sustainability as part of an online conversation series entitled The Future is Calling Us to Greatness. Dowd's passion for proclaiming a pro-science message of inspiration, what he calls the gospel of right relationship to reality, has earned him the moniker Reverend Reality as he speaks prophetically in secular and religious settings alike about the generational evil of anti-future, anti-Christian policies and the necessity of co-creating a just, healthy, and sustainably life-giving future for humanity and the larger body of life. So, Michael, welcome. Thank you, Rick. Good to be here. I've spent a marvelous week listening to hours and hours and hours of your talks that you've given in the past, Connie's talks, even some Thomas Berry talks and poems that he was reading, all sorts of things, and reading articles you've written, reading a good chunk of your of your book. And uh, I must say that this everything you talk about really excites me. I mean, I literally got goosebumps at times. I think what you're doing is really important, and so I'm thrilled to have this conversation with you. Cool. Well, I've been looking forward to this, right? Good. So there's so much to cover, I feel. You, you cover so much in the things you say. And I really want to do justice to it and make sure that both after this interview feel like, wow, we really nailed it. We got everything in there. So don't let me lead you astray or down in a little side alleys. You know, make sure that we're, we're covering everything that is dear to your heart and most important. And uh, maybe the best way of starting to do that is for you to just start by the highest first, we could call it. If, you, if this were a one-minute interview, what would you want to start with? That we are in the largest transformation of religious sensibility in perhaps human history, a second axial age, I call it the evidential reformation, where all the religions of the world are coming to realize that there is no future for humanity or for their faith if we don't come into right relationship to reality, which includes coming in right relationship to nature and time. It's exciting. I, I sometimes say reality is my God, evidence is my scripture, and ecology is my theology. Uh, said another way, any understanding of God that doesn't include what we today mean by the word reality isn't God. Reality is Lord. That's not a belief, that's a fact. That is, everything submits to and is accountable to what today we would call reality. What's real whether you believe in it or not. 
And any understanding of scripture that doesn't include evidence is not God's word. Evidence is the main way reality is revealing truth to us today. Not only the evidence of our own experience, but also scientific, historic, and cross-cultural evidence. So that needs to be lifted up at the realm of divine revelation or God's word or scripture. And then any understanding of theology that doesn't include ecology, that is the science of living in a right relationship to time and nature, two of the aspects of reality that are inescapably real, is also a theology that our grandchildren will condemn us for. So it's the greening of religion, but also that has to happen for us to green the economic system. We have an economic system that's demonic. In fact, I just wrote a blog post last week called, um, When Religions Fail, Economics Becomes Demonic. And what I mean is nothing otherworldly. What I mean is that a, a system that rewards the few at the expense of the many and forces all of us to harm the future. I mean, if the word demonic has any meaning in a modern world, it's got to include that. And we've got an economic system that does exactly that. It measures progress and growth and success by how fast we can take nature and turn it into pollution and in, in the process condemn the future. So uh, the distinction between pro-future and anti-future, I mean, we're at the place now where all of our institutions and activities and, and theologies and religion, everything needs to be discerned by does this assist humans coming into a mutually enhancing relationship with the natural world, or does it hinder or harm the future? So pro-future versus anti-future. And when I speak in Christian context, I say pro-Christian or, or Christian, that is saving the future, or anti-Christian, that which is condemning the future. It's ironic that a lot of Christians deny climate change and so on. We'll get into that and, and the underpinnings of why that might be. But one thing I heard you talk about quite a bit in various talks was the notion of God as external to nature, external to the universe, uh, a, a kind of a divine clockmaker, use that metaphor, and thereby you know, viewing the universe as mechanistic and sort of devoid of the divine essence, uh, if you will, uh, versus seeing God as imminent and you know, seeing the, everything is in God and God is in everything. There's just no separation. It's a seamless merging kind of like water in a sponge, uh, although even more than that, because I would go on to say that it's not just water in the sponge, but the sponge and the water are both God. <laughs> so maybe we can play on that a little bit and how that worldview has created so much trouble. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, what you're pointing to is, is that our metaphors matter, that the analogies and metaphors that we use for reality matter. They shape our attention and put our consciousness in a certain track that can be either life-giving and pro-future or life-damaging and anti-future. Mm -hmm. And our concepts of God can do the same thing. In fact, secular people are attacking many, some of the new atheists and, and secular folk are often attacking religion, saying religion is the problem because they even have a God concept. Uh, well, I suggest that's missing the point too. The word God can either be thought of as pointing to some supernatural entity who lives off the planet and outside the universe, who blesses some and smites others. That's a trivial, impotent, inconsequential God. Or the word God can be understood from a science-based way. The one science-based way of understanding of God is that all God talk, all gods and goddesses are personifications that is giving human characteristics to something that's inescapably real. I mean, Poseidon wasn't the god of the oceans. Poseidon wasn't the spirit of the oceans. Poseidon was a personification of the incomprehensibly powerful and capricious seas. Gaia was a personification of earth, not the goddess of the earth or not the spirit of the earth. 
Helios was not the god of the sun, but a personification of this inescapably real reality that gives us life. So the word god, of us, if the word god is not personifying inescapable reality, then it's a trivial god that actually, uh, if we think that we can worship God and trash the environment or treat others in an unjust way, we're out of touch with reality. So our concepts of God matter. And yes, as you say, this idea, pointing out that I say this a lot, that if we think of God as a clockmaker outside a clockwork universe, which is pretty much the worldview we've had for the last 500 years, we're going to be A, desacralizing nature. Nature is no longer a thou to be related to and honored and respected. Nature's an it that we can exploit or we think we can exploit and use for our benefit with no consequences to us. Mm -hmm. That's a catastrophic mistake. It also trivializes God. God is no longer imminent and omnipresent. You know, there's no place that God stops and something else starts. But God is now thought of as a being outside a clockwork universe that you can either believe in, theism, or disbelieve, atheism. And so you've got this debate, thousands or maybe millions of people that are debating whether or not God exists or whether or not God is real, when the one real God, namely reality, personified or not, we've been out of right relationship to, and we're now about to experience consequences of biblical proportion. So our, our views of God seriously matter. That's why I like the nesting doll, like Russian nesting dolls. I, you know, this is a fundamental truth that we know through science, through evidential revelation, is that the universe or reality is comprised of nested spheres of creativity, subatomic particles within atoms, within molecules, within cells, within organisms, you know, and so on and so forth, all the way up. And so any understanding of God that doesn't include basically a name for that one and only creative reality that includes all others, yet also transcends all others, is a God that doesn't deserve to be honored and, and in fact, will lead us down a destructive path. There are about four main points in there that I want to go into in depth sure. with you. And, and probably when I start going into the first one, you're going to give me four other main points that I want to go into in depth with you because this stuff is so great. I'll keep my, I'll keep my answers shorter. <laughs> no, it's all right. It's all right. We'll get to them all. The first is one thing that amazes me and always has is that scientists and surgeons and people like that who look really closely at nature could be atheists or could regard what they're seeing as mechanistic because I mean you look at anything close it's easy to take stuff for granted if you just waltz through your day you know just living your life doing your stuff but if you start looking closely through a telescope through a microscope with an educated understanding you you, you start seeing this miracle in every cell in every galaxy I mean there's this incredible thing going on how can that be random billiard balls running into each other? Yeah, but see, yeah, this I, I've got to jump in here, Rick, yeah, because please. this is, you know, I, I, I don't often find myself in the position of defending atheists, but I'm going to have to in this sure. moment. Most non-religious people or people who don't feel comfortable with traditional God talk because it's, always, it's all this otherworldly supernatural stuff. If all the people in your life who use God talk use it in a way of a supernatural being who is on the side of this group of people and condemning this group of people, then an atheist is simply somebody who says, I don't believe in that being. Yeah, and I, no, think I agree we with that. Atheists to say that. Sure. But most atheists and most secular people that I know of that are really into the science, mm -hmm. they don't see it as billiard balls. They see this emergentist perspective. Michael Shermer is a friend of mine, the head of Skeptic Magazine. Uh, you know, Connie's known Richard Dawkins for decades. Mm -hmm. I mean, these are people who don't have a mechanistic worldview. They're emergentists. That is, it's not either determined, mm -hmm. God preordained it and put it all together, or chance. It's creative. We have a creative reality, a creative cosmos, an emergence that greater complexity keeps emerging out of lesser complexity. So I, 
I, I just feel a little awkward because I don't want to be dissing people saying that they believe this and how could they be so dumb and stupid because that's really not what they believe anyway. No, that's good to know. And I appreciate that. I tried to get an interview with Sam Harris. And I'm going to keep trying. But, you know, one of the things I said in my letter to him is I don't believe in the same God you don't believe in. You yeah, and, right, exactly. <laughs> so what do these people, Shermer and Dawkins and Harris and so on, if you can speak on their behalf, what do they make of this creativity that they, that they see, this emergent creativity? What, what do they think that is? They basically think that it's, it's reality, it's holy, it's sacred, it's whatever, but they don't attribute some supernatural intelligence to the one that created it. They see the whole thing as divine. I mean, some of them wouldn't use the word divine, but they see the whole thing as worthy of our deepest respect and honor and commitment. Frankly, this isn't necessarily a direction I'm that interested in because we don't have time to convert each other over the issues of theology or metaphysics. We need to redesign our economic systems globally, which is going to take a level of cooperation across ethnic, religious, political differences in the service of a healthy future. Otherwise, we are literally condemning our children and grandchildren to hell and high water. So my focus lately, the last two and a half years, have been really big on climate change because I see, which I don't even call global warming. I call it radiation entrapment. And that's what it is. It's radiation, that solar radiation, we're entrapped by it. And that radiation entrapment is gonna be creating a lot of climate chaos. It's every place isn't gonna get warmer as the United States experienced last year as a direct result of radiation entrapment, we had the coldest winter on record practically. And Alaska was baking with the, the hottest winter on record. Sure, because the jet There's stream this, was pushed Exactly, the jet stream was doing this loopy stuff, right, right. exactly, and it's, it's global weirding. <laughs> and, but because one season may be brutally cold, the next season may be brutally hot, the next season may be brutally dry, the next season may be brutally wet, that's global weirding, and that's going to screw up the, the climate patterns. It's going to make it very difficult to have food that feeds as many people as need to be fed. So I, I'm tending these days to focus a lot less on theology and metaphysics and a lot more on, okay, we don't agree on that? No problem. Let's set that aside. What can we agree on so that we can work together to ensure a healthy future? That's sort of the bottom line for me these days. But one thing I think you're doing, though, is you feel that the more fundamental level at which we can operate, the more effective we, the more effectively we can change things. You know, the principle of a fulcrum. And so, what can we get down to that will shift the course of the? You know, I mean, it's like a an ocean liner has this little rudder in the back, little compared to the size of the ship. And if that turns just a little bit, the whole big ship turns. So, if we want to really change people's behavior, what's the most influential? What's the most pivotal level at which we can function in order to do that? And I think that when we can ask that question, we have to address the metaphysics a little bit. Changes in our deepest understandings of the way nature works are going to ripple up in terms of the way we behave. Exactly. No, I, I completely agree. My only point is that if what we need to do is live individually and collectively, in such a way that decade by decade, the soil is getting healthier. Decade by decade, the carbon is being reduced from the atmosphere. That decade by decade, the forests are getting healthier. You know, so if that's what we need to do, there's gonna be 
lots of different metaphysical and theological and philosophical ways of getting there. There's not going to be one right way, the only way to think about the nature of reality that helps us live in right relationship to reality. Now, I personally am rather passionate about what I call the path of factual faith or sacred realism. I'm a religious naturalist. I have no supernatural or otherworldly beliefs. But that, that's just my worldview. There are deep, close friends of mine who do have supernatural otherworldly beliefs from a lot of different traditions, and yet they're also committed to permaculture, sustainability, reducing our carbon footprint, living more lightly on the planet. So what's the common denominator between you and those friends? We're all pro-future. We're all pro-nature and pro-future. That is, we are our individual lifestyles and our collective impact on the natural world, on what I call primary reality. I mean, primary reality is that which gives birth to life, that which sustains and nurtures life, and that which receives life at its end. Mm -hmm. And whether you call that God or the goddess or the universe or cosmos or whatever, Buddha nature, we are all part of that, what I call divine reality, and we need to honor it as divine. So we have not for the last few hundred years been honoring the soil, the water, the air, the forests, and other life forms as divine or as sacred or as or as precious or as worthy of our deepest respect. We've been treating all of that as merely resources for us to use and it's a short-sighted vision of the future. We haven't been thinking in terms of the fact that we allow corporations, for example, to buy 100 acres of land, build all those factories, put all their waste into that soil, and then move to some foreign country without being responsible for putting that land back in the way it was beforehand is insanity. We have an economic system that's insane because it's all about using nature with total short-term lenses. We're not thinking in terms of the seventh generation that we should behave and act and decide and live our lives in the present in a way that's a blessing for seven generations. We've been so unsustainable and the word unsustainable and the word evil they're both pointing to the same thing. Mm -hmm. God's fundamental law, that is life's fundamental law for all species, is don't live in the present in ways that diminish or destroy the future. But we're doing exactly that, and we have to shift that. And I think we're going to need a lot of people. We're going to need Christians and Buddhists and Hindus and Jews and atheists and everybody to work together to move forward. That's why I'm more interested in that practical stuff. Yeah. And so I guess one question would be, why do we do that? I mean, what is it about our corporate mentality or collective mentality that causes us to destroy nature and squander our resources without regard for future consequences? Well, that's a really good question, Rick. And I, I don't know that I've got a great answer, but I've done some thinking on this. Because if we're going to stop doing it, we might help to know why we're doing it. Right. Well, one of the things, as Martin Buber, the famous Jewish theologian, said decades and decades ago, that if we treat nature as merely an it to be used and exploited by us, rather than a thou to be honored and respected in its own right, he said, not only is the divine not present, but that we will cause our own extinction. We can no longer afford to do that. Nature will be respected or we will suffer the consequences. It's not like nature is a cute bunny that needs our protection. No. Nature is the presence of God. And if we don't begin to respect, we don't humble ourselves and respect the natural systems upon which we depend, the carbon cycles, the nitrogen cycles, the carbon dioxide, basically we have to 
learn from nature as if nature is the voice of God. And if nature's laws are God's laws, and we either need to abide by those laws or we suffer the consequences, we will create the hell for our, ourselves and our children. So I think the biggest thing is to learn ecology. I think ecology is the new theology. And different people, different religious traditions will come at it a different way. But the science of ecology, the science of learning to live within limits, God is in the limits. We have to honor ecological limits. This idea that we can have an everlasting, growing economy when the quality of the air, water, soil, and life upon which that economy depends is declining. So the primary economy of nature is decreasing, contracting in health and vitality and vibrancy, and yet we think we can have a never-ending, it's insane. So that's what we can agree on is to learn ecological principles. That's why I consider the single most important book in print today to be this book, William Catton's book, Overshoot, mm. The Ecological Basis of Revolutionary Change. It was written in 1980, and I consider it not only the most important book of the 20th century, but it's currently the most important book, in my opinion, in print because... Again, it doesn't matter what you're doing. the Bible, I suppose. <laughs> it, well, I, I treat it. I treat this like modern day scripture. Yeah. I treat this as that God, reality, is speaking through William Catton. And it, it's not just me. The interesting thing, if you just put William Catton tribute, my page comes right up. And I've got quotes and, and longer tributes from these amazing scientists and environmentalists who are virtually all of them saying that this is one of the top two or three most significant books they've ever read in their lives. And some of them, like Derek Jensen, says it's the most important book in the in the of the 20th century. Not only that, but you have uh, you and Connie reading it on your website, don't you? One can listen to the yeah, audio. Yeah, but yes, I have unofficially recorded the audio of this, mm -hmm. and I only give it out to a few close friends. Oh, because, sorry. <laughs> because, I, well, I actually called the publisher. Yeah. I actually invited, and it looks like they're going to have me do it. So there oh, will be an official audiobook, okay. me going into a studio and doing it. But the version that I have up online right now, you can hear like there's three chapters where at the end of the chapter, you can literally hear me crying and Connie crying on the couch because we're that moved by this book. Wow. But yes, William Catton, Overshoot, I highly, highly recommend it. Great. Let me come back to I and thou. I think it's a key thing. And I think we can take it a step further because if God is really omnipresent, then there is nowhere where he, I'll just say he for convenience sake, is not. And therefore, ultimately, the reality of creation is a unified wholeness. It's, and I, I and thou sounds, still sounds rather dualistic to me. It sounds better than I and it, but it's still rather dualistic. And so when we are destroying the rainforest, it's not just that we're destroying God's lungs, we're destroying our own lungs. You know, when we're po poisoning the rivers and oceans, we're not just poisoning God's blood, we're poisoning our own blood. And that's an even greater intimacy, I think, with nature than thinking of I and thou, where there's some distance between, you know, what, whatever we are and whatever no, is running I'm, nature. Exactly. Well, I mean, what you're pointing to, and this is why I appreciate the way my friend and colleague Ken Wilbur frames it as mm -hmm. well, which is this sort of the, the, the first, second, third person of God. That right. is reality shows up as an I-thou relationship, that second person, as an I-I, that I am that, uh, you know, that, that there's this identification that we are literally the result of 13.8 billion years of creativity now becoming conscious of itself. So we are literally the universe becoming aware of itself. Mm -hmm. We're, we're nature uncovering its own nature. 
And we don't believe that. We know that, that, you know, there's not a scientist in the world that I know that would debate that, that a human being looking through a telescope is the universe just gawking at itself like, whoa. You know? <laughs> a biology student looking at a microscope is the planet Earth learning with awareness, with consciousness, how it's functioned unconsciously and instinctually for billions of years. So there's that, that, that you know, I am that, thou art that, that whole sense. So that, absolutely, that's right. a sense that nature is not separate from me, that I am. You know, as John Seed says, you know, I'm not John Seed protecting the rainforest. I'm the rainforest mm -hmm. protecting itself through John Seed. Yeah, that's and not so there is the that. bell tolls, it tolls for thee. Yeah, exactly. Right. So, yes, absolutely. There's this, the, how we think about the divine and how we think about our relationship to nature. There are times when I am so present in outside of symbolic language. I'm just in the experience of this oneness, this that I am this reflecting on itself. I'm, no, I'm not different from it. I'm completely a part of it. And for me to protect nature is the same intimacy as if I stopped you from trying to cut off my arm. It's like me we're talking about. Right, exactly. And then there's also the I, uh, thou, where that's the, the divine other there, that's, you know, that we are, that, I, that, that there's some of the humility that comes, yes. you know, that this larger reality gave me birth. And then there was also the ayet, which is, you know, there's times when we actually think of resources in terms of copper or gold or silver or just, you know, a food where we get our food. And we can step into that I, I and I, thou as well. But I think all three of these ways of thinking need to be honored. And uh, so I appreciate you for pointing that out because I think it is vital. I think it's important. I think that's what Christ may have meant when he said, you know, whatsoever you do unto the least of these, you do unto me. Right. And any of us could say that, actually. Right. Uh, it's like we're doing whatever we do to anything, we're doing it to ourselves. Right, exactly. Don't worry, we're going to keep coming back to <laughs> ecology and climate change and all that. It's very okay. important to me. I, I just want to touch upon the personification point that you made a little bit. Great. I was hoping you'd come back to that. That's great. Okay, great. Perhaps you could just quickly recapitulate what you said about that, and that would give me a springboard for asking you sure. a question or two. If I were to try to describe what I consider to be the single most important scientific discovery about religion in the last hundred years, and I know that's a big claim I'm making, but I think it's true. It can be summed up in the one word personification or personalizing. That is, we now know, again, we don't believe this, we know this, that our brains are inherently relational. We can't not relate. Our brains are instinctually programmed to relate, and we typically relate through human categories. Throughout human history, we've treated the river or the soil or the oceans or whatever in a personified way, and all gods and goddesses are personifications, not persons. And as I said, Helios, what Connie and I call great soul, S-O-L. So we don't relate to what most people call the sun, little s. We relate to that reality as great soul. So in the morning, we sing, hi, hi, great soul. And we've got this little song that we sing. And then at night, we sing, bye, bye, great soul. And we've got this little <laughs> song that we do. Cute. Nora is our personification of North America. We don't call this continent North America. We call this reality Nora. That is, we give human characteristics to this continent. And we have this intimate, personal love relationship with this continent. Angel is our van. You know, we personify our van as angel. It's our bedroom on wheels. We actually don't have an RV. We live out of the generosity of others who open up their homes to us. And we've got our sort of our bedroom on our back and angel. But we also personify our relationship. There's Connie, there's Michael, and then there's Jasmine. And Jasmine is the mythic personification that we've given to us or to we. And sometimes it's really clear what Michael wants to do and it's clear what Connie wants to do. But when one of us asks the question, what does Jasmine want in this situation? Mm. 
it allows me as a man to not be attached to my position. And I can actually go with something Connie might have suggested in the first place, but I don't feel like she's won and I've lost. I feel like I'm proud that I'm doing what's good for Jasmine. So this personification is so vital because here's a classic example. This is actually a really good example. If I think of gods, if I think of God or any god or goddess throughout human history as a separate non-material entity floating around somewhere, then I'm going to miss the power of the personification. I'm going to miss the, the inescapable reality. Like I say, Helios is inescapably real. Poseidon is inescapably real. Gaia is inescapably real. You don't have to personify those realities, but the realities that they point to are inescapably real. And that's why I love the fact that Hollywood has just gotten with the program in a major way. Any, anybody watching or listening to this, just put natureisspeaking.com. I think oh, I that's what it is. Nature yeah, speaking. Those are great. And there's these videos that have now been done. Julia Roberts, for example, speaks as Mother Nature. Mm -hmm. She doesn't speak about nature. She speaks, she's nature giving voice. Harrison Ford speaks as the oceans. You could say that's the voice of Poseidon today. And I mean, these are kick butt. I mean, some of these videos have had millions of views. They've gone viral because they tap into the power of personification. And so for me, God is a personification of reality. I put it this way. God is reality with a personality, not a person outside reality. So Uncle Sam personifies the United States. Santa Claus personifies Christmas. Well, no. Well, Santa Claus doesn't really personify. Yeah, Santa Claus in some ways personifies <laughs> For some the, people. the generous spirit or whatever. But yeah, Santa Nicholas Claus is less of a personification than, say, Uncle Sam. Uncle Sam, you know, could you imagine how bizarre it would be if you're walking into a room and you hear two people debating whether or not Uncle Sam is real or whether or not Uncle Sam exists? Your first thought was they don't get it. Uncle Sam is a personification of the government. Of course, the government's real, but of course, it's not literal. But we all assume when we talk about Santa Claus or Uncle Sam that there really is no such person. It's just a symbol or a representation. A of, personification. Yeah, personification. Right. So that's what you're saying with regard to Jasmine. There is no such thing as Jasmine. But, but this is it. I want to stay with this for a second because mm -hmm. there really is. Well, that's what I would argue. Come relationships that. are real. More there than the is sum of a their reality parts. that we, whether we call that reality Jasmine or not, but there is a relationship between me and Connie that is not just our differences. It's the whole that is more than the sum of the parts exactly. or a whole that is different than the sum of the parts. And by giving that reality a name, it allows us to have a healthier relationship to that reality. So by giving North America, the continent of North America, a mythic name, we have a more intimate personal relationship. And by giving what's inescapably real, like what's real whether you believe it or not, and, and I think time, nature, and mystery, whatever else reality is, at least includes time, nature, and mystery. Mm -hmm. So for me, God is inescapably undeniably real or the goddess, whatever you want to call it. But for us, the word God is like a name, a proper name, a sacred name for reality as a whole. And the first thing that we know when we study, when we learn about reality is that there are limits that are real. In fact, what I sometimes think is the ecological limits by not honoring our ecological limits that we have, uh, we're creating hell. That's why I interpret the, the mythic story of the fall of Adam and Eve, not as the disobedience of one human being disobeying God, but humanity dishonoring God's limits. God says, okay, all this is cool. Stay away from that tree. That's a limit. We dishonored that limit. And by dishonoring the limits of nature, the, the ecological limits, we take ourselves off the path of paradise and we put ourselves on the path of hell. And that's what we're doing now. And the only way of salvation 
again, using mythic language, but the only way of salvation is to come back into right relationship to reality. And that's the path of integrity. So anybody, for me, Christ is not a supernatural person floating around somewhere. Christ is the incarnation or embodiment or personification, a personification of integrity. You may think there's some path to right relationship to reality that bysteps integrity. You're deceived. There's no way. And so Satan is not some disembodied spook. Satan is a personification of everything that would lead us or could lead us to be out of right relationship to reality. Everything that would lead us to be anti-future, personified. Mm -hmm. So from that vantage point, Satan and Christ are inescapably real. They're not supernatural beings. They're personifications of that which would have us destroy the future or that which would have us save or help or you know, be a blessing to the future. Cool. I want to stay on this personification thing for a bit. Cool. And I think it also relates to nested creativity in the sense that like a jellyfish is more than the sum of all the little things that make it up. Or our body, 10,000 trillion cells, is more than the sum of all its parts. It can do things and know things and whatnot that no individual cell can do. I would suggest that there's a collective consciousness to you and, and Connie that you call Jasmine, which is more than the sum of you and Connie. And the same is true of families, towns, nations, the world. You get sort of wholenesses that are more than the sum of their parts at every level. So that's, that's one point. Yeah, and, well, before you go on, because yeah. that's a really important point. A dear friend and a colleague of mine who died just a few years ago, Walter Wink, W-I-N-K, he wrote a series of books on naming the powers, engaging the powers. And what the series was all about was that what, what the Apostle Paul and others in, say, the New Testament or the Christian scriptures referred to as powers and principalities were personifications of what we would call corporate personhood or corporate personality. I mean, cities, if you personify a city or personify what we would say call a corporation, that is a group of people making decision collectively, there's a whole new level of evil that's possible where you get the ruling elite that tilt the playing field in their favor. All the laws and things are in their favor. And today we use secular language, of course, to talk about that. But when the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, the Christian scriptures, speaks about powers and principalities, he's speaking basically of the personality of this city or the personality of that city yeah. or the personality of Rome or whatever. And they do have personalities. I mean, you go they to do. a different city, there's a whole different feeling. Exactly. On this point on personification, I don't think we've milked everything we can out of it yet. And I want to throw something in that might be a stretch for you, but maybe not. And that is that when we talk about the vastness of the universe, let's say, and the, and the vastness of time, in a way, it's, it's like, to me, it's like talking about the vastness of the Pacific Ocean by measuring its breadth and width without taking into consideration its depth. And what I mean by that is that in addition to sort of the spatial and temporal vastness, there are subtler strata of creation, subtler dimensions. And I think this relates to your nested creativity thing, but perhaps in, in, a, in a way you may or may not have considered. The whole historical talk of angels, for instance, to me is not mythical, it's literal. And it has to do with the fact that some people were able to perceive the subtler strata of creation on which such beings reside. And I have many friends alive today, who I talk with regularly, for whom that's the norm. As normal as it is for you and I to see people walking around the mall, they see them everywhere and they, and they commune with them sometimes and are told things and this and that. And these are normal people running businesses and stuff. So when we talk about personification, I would suggest that when you have something like the sun, Helios or Sol or Surya, the Hindus called it, it's not only a, a hydrogen fusion reaction, but it's actually an embodiment 
of intelligence. Intelligence has taken a concrete form, and that concrete form on the gross level has its corresponding strata on subtler and subtler, subtler levels, such that that form can actually be a conscious being. So Gaia can actually be a conscious being. Surya can actually be a conscious being with bodies very unlike what we ordinarily consider to be life-sustainable, you know, biological bodies, but which is as much a conscious being as we are. And this would kind of apply to the large and the small and all sorts of different things. How does that strike you with, with regard to what you've been thinking about personification? There's a couple things. One is that that's a metaphysical perspective that some people find tremendously inspiring and it matches their own experience. There are others for whom either metaphysically or experientially they've not had that experience. Right. They don't see or interpret the world that way mm -hmm. uh, or they would interpret those sort of in a more metaphorical way or whatever. I don't have a stance in terms of the rightness or wrongness. My hunch is that most angels and fairies and spirits and enti spiritual entities are, again, personifying some relationship that's actually quite real and that there is value for people for whom those experiences are real and that helps them live in right relationship with the water, the air, the soil, and the life forms of their bioregion. Man, I am a deep bow of gratitude and honor of that, but to those people for whom those spiritual experiences cause them to discount nature or discount the importance of uh, living in a sustainable, life-giving, mutually enhancing way with their bioregion, then I think it can be problematic. So I view that towards any spiritual or metaphysical beliefs or experiences. I mean, people can have profoundly real subjective experiences where God or reality tells them to go in this direction. Well, how do you discern whether that's your own self-deceptive nature, whether that's your addictive nature, whether that's all the kinds of things that could be harmful to others or harmful to yourself or harmful to the natural world. I mean, okay, I have a profound, inescapably real subjective experience that tells me to go kill this person. Yeah. Well, on, on what basis? So we have to honor that one of the things that God, reality, has been revealing through evidence, through evolutionary psychology and evolutionary brain science, among other places, is that we have self-deceptive instincts. And that's why we need the collective. Scientists are just as prone to self-deception as anybody else, but the community of scientists where there's motivation, where there's incentive to prove each other wrong is usually a good thing in the long run in terms of helping our theories and our understandings of reality come into a closer alignment with the way reality really is. No, I agree. And obviously someone could be saying stuff that sounds like they're having mystical experiences and they could be psychotic or something. And right. And one of the things that, again, for me, one of the great sacred responsibilities that we have as humans is the responsibility to interpret life in ways that serve our larger communities, in ways that serve the future, and in so doing also serve us. So there's that interpreting life generously or mythically or relationally, interpreting life, because we don't experience reality as it is. We experience reality through the lenses of our interpretation exactly. that can't be distinguished because we live in a world of symbolic language. And so all animals interpret. In fact, you could probably argue that all plants interpret but certainly when you start moving into the realm of symbolic language, that is words that create worlds by how we interpret, our interpretations matter. 
And so if I interpret that the universe is out to get me, if I interpret the universe is, is conspiring against me or reality or whatever, and those are the lenses through which I interpret, then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Even if somebody's nice to me, I'm going to interpret it like, yeah, what are they out, out to get? You know, so I become cynical, uh, skeptical. But if I interpret that the universe you know, is conspiring on my behalf. It's just an interpretation, but I'm going to filter through that. So even when difficult, challenging, painful things happen, rather than judge it or say, oh, why is life condemning you? It's like, okay, how's this God blessing me in disguise? How's this the universe conspiring on my behalf? How can I grow or learn or evolve through this? It's not like one is true or one's not. It's just that one is profoundly serving of my life and the world. And, and it, so I choose to interpret that the universe is conspiring on my behalf. I don't honestly think I could argue and compellingly convince my friend Michael Shermer that that's the case objectively. But what I can say confidently is I know that that's the most kick-ass way to live my life. Because if I live my life as if the universe is conspiring on my behalf, I love my life. And the people around me find me to be a more generous, compassionate person that gets over difficulties really quick because I'm filtering through how is life conspiring on my behalf. It's just a useful stance, but for me, it's one of the most useful stances that there is. Oh, me too. And if you, you know, if you see life as having this sort of evolutionary imperative toward higher expressions of creativity, higher consciousness, however you like to define it, then you see everything as ultimately being in service of that, and it makes the, the universe a lot more friendly a place. Right, but there's a difference. If I take it as, a, as an objective metaphysical truth, mm -hmm. rather than a subjectively empowering useful belief, there's a big difference. I know a lot of friends, several very close friends, in the New Age New Thought movement. They're now in bankruptcy. They're now in crisis because they were living beyond their means, right. but they had this magical view that the universe is, you know, if they just have the right beliefs, then the universe is <laughs> going to be like this uh, bank, you know, machine that is going to keep flowing blessings. And I think the universe would just as soon kill us. I don't think the universe cares one way or the other about us as individuals. But if I act as if the universe does care, then I'm going to live my life in a more generous way. But the important thing is, again, this is what God, this is what reality has been revealing through evidence. We know of 24 complex civilizations in the last 5,000 years. There may be others that we just don't have the evidence for, but we know of 24 complex civilizations. They all rise differently but they all fall the same. There's certain patterns where what happens is a civilization or an empire grows beyond what it can afford to maintain and starts feeding on itself. It's called catabolic collapse. Mm -hmm. And in the early stages of catabolic collapse, virtually all the evidence that we have is that people believe that evolution, or if they didn't have the word evolution, just history, was sort of all leading to them. They're the pinnacle of evolution. And they're not aware that they're about to experience 400 years of contraction and hard times and difficulty because empires and civilizations don't collapse like that. It takes two or 300 years, typically, mm -hmm. stair step to go down. And so the idea that evolution has led to our complexity and our civilization, and therefore, you know, it's all sort of uphill from there without recognizing that we are in the declining decade or two or three of the American empire. Mm -hmm. We are in the declining several decades or century or two of the kind of rapacious industrialism that we've had. And that for most of us and our children and grandchildren, things are going to be more difficult in the future than we or our or even our parents experienced. But we're not going to get that if we think there's this arrow of evolution, that complexity can only occur when there's the energy there. Sure. And we are now in a place where we're running out of the kind of cheap, abundant, 
easily transportable fossil fuel that's a one-time gift from this planet. And solar energy and wind energy is much more diffuse. So we're going to have to live simpler lives. We're going to have to live less wasteful lives. We're going to have to rely on our neighbors again and help our neighbors out and they help us out. So we're going to see the emergence of localism and community. And this idea that we get you know, grapes from Chile shipped up to New York or whatever. This is this kind of globalization that's that has been so fossil fuel intensive is going away. And so many things to say as usual in response to everything you've just said. Uh, and either we're going to do that willingly, we're going to kind of wise up and, and begin to cooperate and so on, the things you just said, or we're going to be forced into it. So right. if we go through hell and high water as you know, the US and the Western civilizations collapse, I wouldn't see that as contradictory to the notion that there's an evolutionary imperative guiding the universe. I would say that mother is cleaning the dirt off us. We need to go through that in the service of our evolution. I like that. I mentioned William Catton's book, Overshoot. So if anybody's just coming in, this is the book that I think is the most important book in print. But there's two other books that I want to highly recommend that are actually both of these people that I'm about to recommend have also grounded. They both consider William Catton's book, Overshoot, to be one of the best books they've ever read in their lives. It's one of the advantages of living on the road. You have a lot of time to read. Exactly. Is, is Richard Heinberg's latest book called Afterburn, mm -hmm. Society Beyond Fossil Fuels. It's not just doom and gloom. It's, it's about a positive vision of the future, but it's also in touch with reality. So I, I highly recommend Richard Heinberg's book, Afterburn. And then my favorite author in the world, John Michael Greer, uh, I've read 10 of his books in the last uh, two years. His blog posts, like 50, 60, 70,000 people every week read his blog posts on the Archdruid Report. And this is Collapse Now and Avoid the Rush. <laughs> The best of the Archdruid Report. So I highly recommend John Michael Greer and Richard Heinberg, in addition to my main mentor now, is William Catton. Now, a few minutes ago, you spoke of um, we being lenses, you know, and that we all see things differently because we're lenses. Here's a quote from William Blake that I'm sure you're familiar with. If the doors of perception were cleansed, everything would appear to man as it is, infinite. For man has closed himself up till he sees all things through narrow chinks of his cavern. I would say, and this comes back to the whole notion of spiritual development and the possibility of there being universal truth or universal reality that we're all seeing partially as you know, blind men feeling the elephant. I would say that if we all, theoretically speaking, if we all cleansed our windows of perception a whole lot to the point where they were clear, then there would be pretty much universal agreement about some of the things that we now just have to sort of grant a lot of latitude for, you know, oh, well, my friend believes this, I believe that, whatever, we're, we're friends. We could actually get right down to a scientific experiential verification or re rebuttal of many things that we now consider metaphysical. Yeah, I don't know about that, Rick, because the only way that I can think of that human beings on Moss, that the, all of us, uh, or lots of us, or even just a few of us for that matter, can totally cleanse the lens of our perception is to live without language. Once we use oh, no, no. symbolic language, we're in the realm of interpretation and those interpretations fog our view, shade our view, focus our attention. And even the idea of infinite is a human construct. It's a, it's a category. It's a way of thinking. And certainly, I think the idea of limitlessness, the idea of infinity, the idea of, of unlimited possibilities served us at one time in human history. And I don't, think it long, I don't think it serves us anymore. We need to honor, this is why I say God is in the limits. We need to honor the fact that the 
the, the water and the soil and the, the health of the soil and the ability of our atmosphere to absorb carbon dioxide and the ability of our oceans to absorb our waste, the ability of the, you know, that nature is not unlimited and nature is not infinite. I mean, yeah, you could talk about perhaps at the scale of the, you know, the universe as a whole, you know, I don't know, but, but in terms of this planet, let's just start here. There is not an unlimited or infinite amount of resources that we can take from the natural world. There is not an unlimited or infinite ability for, the, for this planet to absorb our waste and our refuse and all that kind of stuff. And so I think that I would rather say, I don't know if we can cleanse our perceptions and whatever. I do think that we need to at least have as, as clear-eyed an understanding as possible of ecological reality. That's why I love William Catton's book, Overshoot, so much. That we can then say with a humility, okay, as an individual and as a member of different collectives, different groups of people, I'm committed to doing everything I can to be pro-future, to live pro-future, to vote pro-future, to work toward a healthy future as a sacred responsibility. And that doesn't necessarily require us to cleanse the lens of perception because I don't know that that's possible given we live in a world co-created by symbolic language where words create worlds. That is the worldviews that we live and move and have our being within are co-created by the language that we use. Well, let me respond to that. Here's some more from Blake. To see a world in a grain of sand and heaven in a wildflower, to hold infinity in the palm of your hand and eternity in an hour. I think what he was referring to is he's not referring to the fact that, you know, to the, to the non-fact that natural resources are infinite or anything like that. What he's saying is that infinity is tr intrinsic to creation. It's the essential stuff. It's the essential nature of creation. And, and quantum physicists will tell you that too, that that which appears to be a finite pen on my desk, if you get right down to its ultimate reality, is an infinite something. And the natural world, I mean, take a pen or take a tree or a flower. If you have what my wife Connie Barlow and others have called deep time eyes, right. if you have eyes informed by what God, reality, if you don't like the word God, just reality, what reality has revealed through science mm -hmm. about deep time, evolutionary history, then when Connie is in a forest, she isn't just seeing in the way that an uninitiated person who, let's say, meditates a lot but doesn't have any evolutionary understanding of like, okay, this species of tree has been around 275 million years. Uh, this species of tree has been here and there and the different glaciers. When you have a deep time understanding that is an evolutionary understanding that's been informed by science, Connie actually has a more intimate relationship with forests than I do in most cases because she has a depth of knowledge about the, it's almost like she understands the biography. It's like if you and I have just met, we have, we can have a really wonderful relationship. But if we've take, taken two or three hours each to share our life story with each other, all of a sudden there's an intimacy. There's a way that I'm seeing you in a deeper way. I'm experiencing you in a deeper way with some understanding of your history. Mm -hmm. And the same is true for all life forms. So when you understand where these various species of squirrels or raccoons or various trees, that deep time eyes gives us a way to quote that Blake poem again, to see the heaven in a grain of sand and the, you know, all this kind of stuff. We have that sacred eyes. So deep time eyes and sacred eyes, I think will definitely serve us in helping us move into a healthy future. Yes. And that's in a way a, an intellectual understanding, deep time eyes and big history and all that stuff. But it, it gets sort of um, imbibed into our mentality to such an extent that it kind of, I think it kind of 
begins to color everything we see spontaneously without our having to think about it, right? It can, as long as we also have the humility to not just think that what we're studying is a machine, like a clock, where, you know, we take apart the clock and break it down and you know all the component parts and you can put it back together again and you've got a clock. That, no, nature isn't that. If I take a squirrel and take it all down to its parts, I can't put it back together again. There's, there's this, what I call divine mystery. There's this divine sacred something, this emergence mm -hmm. that makes the whole squirrel, the functional squirrel, the squirrel prior to death different than a squirrel that's died and that whatever, that essence that had that squirrel alive. So there's a humility, there's a generosity, there's a, again, sacred eyes is sort of my shorthand for it. But there is a way that if we have the humility to know that we are part of nature, we're not the controllers of nature, we're not the masters of nature. And in fact, if we don't regain the kind of humility that all indigenous peoples had in the face of this reality that some people call nature, some people call the goddess, some people call God, whatever, but that we, um, we're missing something vital. And in fact, it may be, it may be that the only way that we can truly usher in a just, healthy, and sustainably life-giving future is to regain that sense of humility. I, I see it like the prodigal species. You know, humanity, the prodigal species, we've squandered our inheritance we're waking up to our predicament in the pig pen, as it were, and we're coming home to reality, to God, to the Father, whatever metaphor you want to use, but we're coming back home to reality. And there's that humility and you know, sacred eyes that I think is going to be vital in that process. Yeah. And I want you to elaborate more on what humility and sacred eyes uh, means, but let me just throw in something here from the Bhagavad Gita, which is, uh, I forget which chapter, but it's that the enlightened person sees all beings in the self and the self in all beings. Amen. And, and what that means is that you and I are actually the same person. Uh, superficially, there appear to be two of us. When we get right down to it, we are the same consciousness. You know, it's like the electrical field, you know, it shines through this light bulb, it, it works through this camera, it works in this iPod, and, and, you know, it's the same field expressing itself through different instruments. So, you know, you and I are different instruments, but different sense organs of the infinite, we could say, expressing in different, reflecting, well, and another analogy, the sun, same sun, shining on a bunch of different things. It reflects this way off a pond, this way off a mirror, this way off a diamond, and yet it's the same light, just reflecting differently through different reflectors. Right, and we're both being breathed by life. I mean, we talk about I'm breathing, you're breathing, but in a way, I don't have to think about it. I mean, life is breathing through me. There's one life that breathes through all creatures. There's, there's ultimately not the Atlantic Ocean, the Pacific Ocean, the Mississippi River. There's one water system of planet Earth, and that same water system flows through our veins and, and comes down our face when we cry. And so that's, again, coming to that awareness of that we participate in a what I call sacred reality, that we need to live in right relationship to reality. That's why I call my message these days the gospel of right relationship to reality. That is the good news that's only possible when we honor what's fundamentally, undeniably, and inescapably real. And whatever else that means, it includes nature, my outer nature, my inner nature, my social nature and my interpretive nature. So nature, being in right relationship to nature means honoring that nature, not dishonoring that nature. And we, we dishonor nature when we think we can continue to use the air, water, the soil as a garbage can. Yeah. Time is real. Now, I know some spiritual people think, oh, the only thing that's real is the present moment. Horseshit. <laughs> 
the 13.8 billion years of creativity made this moment possible. And so the past is real. Yes, the only place that you can experience or think about the past is in the present moment. That's true. But that doesn't discount the reality of the past. And the future, if we act as if the future is not real, we will condemn the future. So being in right relationship that is honoring the reality of time, acknowledging that I, the only place I can be grateful to the past and the only place that I can be a blessing to the future is in the present moment. Amen. But that doesn't make it real, less real. So, And dishonoring time, I would say, is somebody who thinks that time isn't real or more potently in this Western culture is somebody who says, the past only goes back a few thousand years, you know, and who cares about climate change? I mean, Jesus is coming back again, right. you know, and so that's dishonoring time. And then finally, dishonoring mystery, because again, I think time, nature, and mystery, whatever else the word reality holds, it at least means time, nature, and mystery, because those are real whether we believe in them or not. In fact, I love this quote from Philip K. Dick. He says, reality is that which when you stop believing in it doesn't go away. Mystery is real to that degree. I mean, not just the realm that we don't know, but the entire realm that we don't even know that we don't know. So living in an honorable relationship to mystery is to recognize that we don't have all the answers, that there's an intelligence, there's a reality larger than us that we're an expression of, we're not separate from, but we don't have access to the wisdom of the whole and the intelligence of the whole. So there's that humility. And to dishonor mystery is to basically think that we are at the end of knowledge. We're at the end of, you know, we, we know everything or we can know everything or we can control everything. And, and that kind of hubris, uh, I love John Michael Greer's definition of hubris, is the overweening pride of the doomed. <laughs> I love it. That's great stuff. When you speak of humility, what that gets right down to for me is misappropriating the authorship of action and the, and the ownership of who we actually are. I mean, if I think that I am just this person and that I came into existence at such and such a time and that I will come, go out of existence at such and such a time and that I am in, actually in total control of my life or I am trying to be and so on and so forth, it's it automatically means that I'm not going, uh, that I'm going to try to insist that things happen a particular way, that I'm going to try to box all sorts of understandings into my little head rather than honor the mystery, as you say. But if I kind of recognize that I am the sort of deep, vast intelligence, which is eternal, expressing itself through this particular instrument at this particular time, then I think that automatically enables me or anyone to live in, in a humble way. I completely agree. And what this reminds me of is the whole topic that a lot of people think religion is mostly about this. I don't think it is. Religion, if it's doing its job, is to help us live in right relationship to the fundamentally real, undeniably real aspects of our reality. That is the limitations of our ecological context, the challenges of living in community, because there are challenges to living in community. I mean, all religions have promoted personal wholeness and social coherence via a variety of different ways of doing that. And so one of the things that a lot of people think religion is mostly about is death or the after death or, you know, afterlife and, you know, what happens when we die and that sort of thing. And just speaking as a religious naturalist, I mean, I, I am a bow of gratitude to whatever metaphysical or theological ways that people have of thinking about death. That's fine. But I visit graveyards a lot. Connie and I visit graveyards a lot. And one of the reasons we do it is because, A, it promotes humility. I mean, you don't have to read too many gravestones before you realize that it wasn't very long ago that a lot of women died in childbirth and a lot of 
children died under the age of five. And so we're fortunate in that that's not the reality for most of us today. But it also gives me a perspective that I find hugely valuable. And that is, I'll look at a gravestone and I'll read the name and the dates and if the person's there with their husband or wife or whatever. And one of the things I'll say to myself often is whatever this person may have believed about his or her soul or spirit or consciousness, whatever transcended death that may have inspired them to live a great life, no problem. That's fine. But from the perspective of every life form in the universe, this person is everlastingly dead. And pretty soon, I'm going to be just as everlastingly dead. That is, the, this Michael Dowd in this form with this consciousness and this, these thoughts and these feelings will, from the perspective of every life form in the universe, I will no longer exist in that way. And what that does for me is, paradoxically, it, it's just deeply inspiring. I have one life to leave a legacy. I have one life to make a difference. And I don't want to put off the things that are my legacy work, my mission, my, my sense of my life purpose, like where I can make the biggest difference for the future and for the planet. I don't want to put those things off. I went through, as I think you may know, five years ago, I went through a very serious bout of cancer. I had a tumor the size of my fist in my spleen. And I had six rounds of chemotherapy and then had my spleen removed. And there was a period of about a month, month and a half where we were looking at the possibility that I could die in the next six months. Yeah. It's to a year. And even when that was the case, I had, I had what religious people call the peace that passes understanding. Now, I did have one afternoon, like I was diagnosed on Thursday. On Saturday afternoon, I had some serious fear. But after that, from Saturday evening on to this day, that was five years ago, I basically the two emotions that I was flooded with, one was gratitude. When I looked to the past, I had this tremendous gratitude that I had lived at that time, 51 years, that I was graced to have lived that long. My kids, my three children are doing really well. So my genetic legacy felt like it was in good hands. My mimetic legacy, my ideas were still, my book was doing well, my ideas were getting out to the world. And so I felt like this gratitude, like, oh my God, I've lived already probably longer than most of my ancestors. So I had this gratitude when I looked to the past. And then when I looked to the future, including a future that didn't include me, like if I die in the next year, I had this trust. And for me, that's what faith is. Faith for me, real faith, is trusting that whatever happens on the other side of death is just fine. And so that gratitude for the past and trust for the future has allowed me these last five years to be in this place where even though I'm cancer-free and I've had three CAT scans and showed no sign of cancer, and to my knowledge, I'm 100% healthy, I don't take my life for granted anymore. I choose to cherish every season. And like we were talking about earlier in this conversation, I personify kind and I personify the seasons. So at the end of spring, for example, not long ago, actually, technically, we're not in summer yet until the 21st of June, but we actually at the beginning, like yeah, exactly. <laughs> at the beginning of June, we personified the spring and we said, both of us, we were out watching the sunset. Uh, we're in Northern Michigan right now. And we watched the sunset and we said, you know, thank you, spring, for being such an amazing season this year. If one or both of us don't experience you again, and we actually hold in our minds and our hearts the possibility that one or both of us could die before springtime comes again next year. If one or both of us doesn't, don't experience you again, we just cherish what a gift you've been. And then we're silent. And often one or both of us will start crying. We just don't want to take our lives for granted. And so that as a religious naturalist, as a sacred realist, it seems to me, at least this is my worldview, uh, you and your viewers and listeners may be different, but 
to my mind, it seems pretty clear that where we go to when we die is the same place we came from before we were born. And whether you speak of that as coming from God and returning to God or coming from mystery and returning to mystery or coming from nothing and returning to nothing, I think all those are legitimate ways of, of thinking about it. But as I sometimes say, not just jokingly, if where I go to when I die isn't the very same place that all of the plants and animals and bacteria have gone, <laughs> I'm going to be pissed. I don't think we humans get to go to some special place that the rest of nature doesn't get to go to. So that's just yeah. my worldview. You and Connie and I have a mutual friend in David Sunfellow down in Sedona. Oh, David. Yes. Beautiful yeah. man. And you've probably seen his documentary on near-death experiences. Yeah, exactly. This is one of the areas where David and I have a different worldview. It's a really important thing for him. Mm -hmm. This whole idea that human consciousness is somewhat different from all other forms of consciousness and that we survive death in some real way. And oh, again, I think that, cats and dogs do too. I mean, okay, that, well, that's cool too. You but, know, but, whatever, amoebas that we're all sort of evolving entities and uh, that we've all had many lives, we'll have many lives. And there's, there's a lot of evidence for it. And, and it's not something that you need to believe in or anybody needs to believe in, but it could work that way. Let's, say, let's, let's take it as a theory. Right. And there's different ways of thinking about that. You can believe, as some people do, that there's these individual entities, spiritual, non-material entities called souls mm -hmm. that go from one to another to another to another. Mm -hmm. There's others like uh, Carl Jung and others that see this more in terms of the collective unconscious that we tap into. Yeah, take a bucket out know. of it and that becomes a life. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Yeah. So I, I don't happen to hold the belief that past lives or future lives in a literal sense is real, but that, that doesn't mean I can't be a bow of respect and honor to those of my friends who do have that belief. Yeah. Regarding beliefs, personally, I regard all beliefs as like theories that are open to investigation. And there are means and tools for investigating them. And, you know, scientists don't get all hot and bothered if some other scientist has a theory that they don't happen to ascribe to. They think, well, let's test it. You know, and let's let's all test it, and we'll see how it works out. And maybe I'll change my mind, and maybe I won't. And uh, you know, obviously, a lot of scientists aren't quite as flexible and and uh, objective as that. As as someone said, science progresses by a series of funerals, ideally, at least. Well, religion doesn't even do that by I, because <laughs> of our idolatry of the written word and idolatry of the otherworldly and idolatry of beliefs, what I call the triple idolatries. Idolatry of the written word is where you think God's best guidance, that is our best map of reality, is frozen in time. Right. And idolatry of the otherworldly is where you think where ultimate value, ultimate holiness or reality exists is only outside time and nature. And idolatry of belief is when you think any one belief system is the only one right way to write relationship to reality. Those triple idolatries make it such that that religion doesn't even proceed by funerals, whereas at least right. science does. At least science does, yeah. But still, what do you think about the idea that anything any anybody cares to believe in or not doesn't need to be taken rigidly, but could be regarded as a potential theory. So do well, angels yeah. exist? Does reincarnation exist? You know, and throughout history, there have been people who have had all sorts of experiences, which they spoke about and talked about these things. Okay, well, the, there's a show on TV called The Ghost in My Child about little kids who clearly remember a past life and come out with all kinds of details that they couldn't possibly have known otherwise. So if it's possible for some people to have these experiences, maybe it means that we have the innate capacity to have them and any and all of us could develop that capacity and thereby use our own mind and nervous system as a scientific instrument to systematically investigate whether this, that, or the other thing were in fact true. And my basic response to that is, so what? 
In other words, this is one of the metaphysical things that I think can be distracting. Because what we most need to focus on right now is how we get our energy, how we grow our food, how we live our lives, how do we shift this demonic economic system that is designed to reward a few at the expense of the many and designed to make almost all of us harm the future. So how so for you it's like angels dancing of, on the head of a pin or something. Yeah, exactly. It's like, right. who the fuck cares? <laughs> Excuse my language. That's right. Uh, I, you know, if your belief systems, if your metaphysics inspires you to be of greater service to the future and to live in a more humble, less carbon-intensive way, then, then great. I am a deep bow of gratitude. Yeah. If your belief system thinks that you can continue living high on the hog in a carbon-intensive way, and who cares about what things are going to be like 100 years from now, then I'm going to say your beliefs are not serving you and your beliefs are likely to allow your children and grandchildren to condemn them. So I tend to focus a lot less at this time on these sorts of metaphysical questions. And David, you mentioned David Sunfellow. Uh, I love David. Another David that I hugely value and love and respect is one of the world's top scientists in the whole field of biology and evolutionary biology. And that's David Sloan Wilson. Edward O. Wilson and David Sloan Wilson are two of the leading evolutionary theorists, and they actually agree on a whole lot more than either one of them agrees with Richard Dawkins, who's another uh, leading evolutionary theorist. But David Sloan Wilson has this really important distinction between practical truth and factual truth, or practical realism and factual realism. And it's really simple. Practical truth is when it's a belief or a way of thinking that if you act as if it's true, your life is served, your community is served. In other words, it promotes personal wholeness and social coherence. It's practical truth. It's like, it's a way of thinking that if, you, if I act as if this is real or act as if this is true, the fruit of my life individually and socially is good fruit. It's what religions traditionally have specialized in is practical truth. Factual truth is what science specializes in, but Factual truth can kill us if it's not interpreted in ways that also promote personal wholeness and social coherence. And from an evolutionary standpoint, David Sloan Wilson makes the point that practical truth will outcompete factual truth every day if it's a common if it, if they're up against each other. So that's why one of the tasks that, that are important that we attend to now is how to take the factual truth that we're gaining through evidential revelation, that is what God, what reality is revealing through evidence, how do we take that factual truth and make sure that we interpret it in ways that also serve us individually, collectively, and our pro-future? Again, mm. uh, how does it serve the future? So I think that distinction between practical and factual truth is a very, very useful one. Yeah, it is. And I think there's some really exciting and, and powerful implications to what you're saying here. We have a tradition of wanting to know things as human beings and wanting to accomplish things like we wanted to get to the moon right and a lot of people argued against doing that and spending the money this is what practical value is it is a bunch of rocks but it turned out that the effort to get to the moon not only gave us tang but brought about all sorts of innovations and technological developments that and helped us look about look back and look and, at the earth, the earth as a living one creative living reality that we either need to learn to live in right relationship to or we're screwed. Yeah. And now we've, you know, built this huge particle accelerator in Geneva and we've discovered the Higgs boson and people are saying, so what, you know, what's, what's the Higgs boson going to do for us? <laughs> but somehow the effort to know uh, ends up more often than not having all sorts of unforeseen benefits and consequences. And also, of course, gives Some us challenges. the capability of, of destroying ourselves. Where I'm going with this is that I sort of feel like 
it doesn't have to be an either-or situation. I mean, I know there are spiritual people who just marinate in their experiences and could give a, give a damn what happens to the environment, and it's very narcissistic and self-indulgent and waste of time. Uh, but I, I also, at the same time, and in the same breath, I feel like somehow the unfolding of deep mystical experience and the commonality of that that I see blossoming all over the world as I interview people week after week. People just sometimes with no prior interest in such things are just waking up to this profound depth of experience. It has important implications for what you're so passionate about in terms of changing societal systems and changing the way we, we treat the, the ecology and all. I think there's a connection there that you might be glossing over, you might feel like, oh, to heck with that, it's, it's metaphysical. Well, no, 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 I don't discount that, I don't undervalue it. I think that we are shaped by our experiences, whatever we call spirituality, for me spirituality are the practices and exercises, the mindset and the heart set that helps me live in right relationship to reality. And there are profound experiences that are possible for the human animal that help us feel our deep connectedness, our relatedness, our at-homeness, that also inspire us to live with greater integrity, greater generosity, greater thoughtfulness, greater care, and that I am not in any way underplaying that or disvaluing that. Okay. I'm just suggesting that I do know some people that are so caught up in the pursuit of those states of consciousness exactly. that, that, that for them they downplay the fact that 50 years from now, the generations alive, the people living alive 50 years from now, and my granddaughter is four years old, almost five years old, so that puts her one year younger than I am now, 50 years from now. And what my granddaughter is going to care about and what her generation is going to care about isn't how much I meditated, not what my beliefs were. They're not going to care whether we, all the things that we think are important, the thing that's going to most matter to them is, do they still have soil to grow food? Yeah. Do they have a climate that is not so punishingly cruel that it's as, it's as though they were condemned? In other words, that's what I mean, is that if our spiritual practices don't serve us to be a blessing to the future, then what the hell are they about? It's I, just spiritual masturbation. I totally agree with you. And that's why I was so excited about having this cool. interview with you, because you put your money where your mouth is. And I was at a, that Science and Non-Duality conference a few years ago, and somebody, David Loy, Buddhist uh, teacher you may be familiar with, got up on the mic and was asking a, a teacher who was up on the podium, you know, well, what about ecology? What about the earth and all that stuff? And, and this guy, in a very sort of detached way, answered, well, you know, it's just a speck of dust. You know, it doesn't matter in the big scheme of things. And David was like, come on, you know, and he kept, kept kind of pushing the guy. I think there has to be a complete holistic package. So let's talk about, I mean, the, the situation with the, with the environment. We have a government which is owned by corporations, which is making stupid decisions, and, and half of which denies that there is, is even a problem, and we want to change that. Let me just finish. So we got that on the one hand. On the other hand, I see this upsurge of spiritual awakening taking place all over the world, and I connect the two. I think that nature is giving us a lifeline. It's, it's, give, it's responding to the dire situation that we've gotten ourselves into with a solution which maybe most of us don't see coming but which is ultimately fundamental and will ripple up in terms of actually changing the mindsets of people in the world such that we can actually begin to see change in policy matters and, and you know corporate behavior and stuff like that. So in other words, what I'm saying in a nutshell is that spiritual awakening is the ultimate solution to 
greed and uh, stupid behavior that's wrecking the world. Yeah, I agree with part of that, and I'm not sure I agree with all of it, because again, when we look at, when we take a careful look at the 24 complex civilizations that have existed before ours, all of which have declined and right. fallen, one of the things that we see is at the height and within the first several decades of the decline of that civilization, many people, there, there are these religious movements that are all sort of seeing a, a, a leap in consciousness, a, a transformation, some large scale where everybody's going to get it. it and, we're all, you know, and it didn't happen. <laughs> you and, got a point. <laughs> uh, and so this is where I come to ecology is the new theology that is, and that's why William R. Catton's book Overshoot is, in my opinion, the most important book in print, because what he talks about are some of the fundamental ecological realities. And when you understand human history from an ecological standpoint, you realize that not only have these 24 civilizations, but other less complex societies have often, uh, where they met their downfall was when they didn't honor the ecological limits of their, you know, living in a way that was within the caring capacity, to use ecological language, that every bioregion, every continent, every land base has a caring capacity. That is, it can support so many of this kind of animal living in this kind of way. Mm -hmm. Now, Earth can support so many human beings, that is Homo sapiens, but now we're not even dealing just with Homo sapiens. We're dealing with what Catton calls Homo colossus. That is, each one of us is now living, that is, we are using the resources and exuding waste like 20 human beings, mm. say, 500 years ago. Right. So that's Homo colossus. And so we have overshot, this is a fact, we have overshot the carrying capacity of the planet severely. And the only, the only reason that we haven't seen a die-off which is common to all species that are in overshoot, is that we are taking non-renewable resources from the, this, this deep, old, sequestered carbon and putting it out and sustaining us that way. But A, that's not infinite. We can't do that in, in, infinitely. And the more we do that, we're actually lessening the carrying capacity. So over the course of the next 100, 150 years, when there's a decline in population, as there absolutely has to be, we will see, hopefully, a whatever emerges on the other side, the forms of religiosity won't be otherworldly because those will be condemned. <laughs> People living 50 years, 80 years from now will be condemning the religions that didn't stop the kind of chaos that they're dealing with. Mm -hmm. So that's why we once again need to have, as we've talked about several times in this, this conversation, this humility and ecological sensitivity where we come back into... Uh, a mutually enhancing relationship with the air, the water, the soil, the life of our region. And we honor God's limits. That is, we honor nature's limits. Ultimately, I'm hopeful. When you, when you step back and look at things from a big history perspective, I think there will be seen this little blip of time where we you know, thought that we could control nature. We thought that we could dominate nature. We thought that we didn't have to worry about our consequences. And we're going to experience the catastrophic results of that in the next 10 to 50, 100 years. Yeah. But there will be a restabilizing of climate. There will be a restabilizing, probably at a very different level than now. And for the next... Let's say humans have been around 200,000 years, Homo sapiens that is using symbolic language. The next 200,000 years, 1,000 years from now, or even 2,000 or 5,000, whatever, 
it's going to be humans once again, as we did for 99% of our history up until just 10,000 years ago, we did live in a mutually enhancing relationship or we suffered the consequences. We lived beyond the caring capacity of our bioregion and there was a die-off. So ultimately, I'm hopeful in a longer term sense, but I think we've got some purgatory. <laughs> we've got some burning off. We've got some challenges where we've been out of right relationship to reality. It's a terribly exciting and terrifying time to be alive, but I personally don't hold out hope that there's going to be some massive consciousness shift that's then going to immediately translate to systemic institutional shift that's going to spare us from dealing with the consequences of our actions for the last several hundred years. There is going to be, there are going to be consequences. We're going to have to deal with them, but hopefully people living 100 years, 200 years, 300 years, 500 years from now will be uh, grateful for the fact that humanity comes back into this intimate, personal relationship with God, with the goddess, with reality, with yeah. nature. I actually agree with you. I do think there is a massive consciousness shift, but I also think that that might actually accelerate the collapse <laughs> of you know all sorts of institutions and, and business and corporations and whatnot that have no place in a, in a sustainable world or perhaps it will buffer the change you know make yeah. it make it a little bit more smooth i think that there's a big consciousness shift is kind of undeniable when you, you begin to see how just how it's proliferating well certainly um, in terms of yeah i mean ken wilbur and others to speak about um uh, this you know we've gone from you know self centeredness to group centeredness to you know nation centeredness to planetary and global there's this consciousness that's expanding our sense of in-group i mean we today cooperate with people that our grandparents feared and hated so there is this sense of greater cooperation greater compassion greater empathy whether that is able to be sustained on the other side when fossil fuels are but a distant memory and we don't have that kind of global cooperation and global transport and I don't know, but I do agree that there has been in these last several hundred years an expansion uh, and longer than that, so expansion of consciousness, expansion of how we interpret reality and experience reality that hopefully will not be lost. I mean, part of how I see my own life purpose, my own mission yeah. is to ensure that whatever forms of religiosity emerge on the other side of the coming challenges, that it be deeply grounded in our best evidential understanding of reality. So evidence is modern day scripture, evidence is divine guidance, evidence is God's word, mm -hmm. not just ancient texts, but also a deeply ecological relationship to God or to theology. That's yeah. why I call it, speak of theology as ecology. Well, when I say consciousness shift, I, it, the, the title of this show kind of indicates what I mean, Buddha at the gas pump, which is that there are sort of Buddhas awakening everywhere in ordinary circumstances. It's, not, yes. it's no longer kind of a rare, unattainable thing. Yeah. And uh, such people have an impact. And I, I totally agree. I mean, I don't want you to give you the impression that I don't, that the things that are foremost on your plate are critical and that if spirituality has any value whatsoever, it has to contribute to the solution of those types of problems. And uh, so let, let's shift it a little bit right now and talk about people like Bill McKibben, you know, we're saying we we can't go over 350 parts per million. And well, we already, yeah, we're, we're already, we're already past four. And, uh, you know, people are saying we can't go over two degrees centigrade. And, and it looks like we're going to, you know, shoot right past that. And people like yourself are running around saying we got to change, we got to change. When you lie your head on the pillow at night, do you think, well, are we going to change? Or, or am I just kind of shouting well, against the wind here? And, and there seems to be this huge momentum that, you know, little guys like me aren't making a dent in. 
I don't feel that way at all. I, I feel like I'm making the biggest difference that I'm capable of making at this time in history, given my unique enough? gifts will and limitations. Enough, you well, and people like you. Will it be enough to save industrial, rapacious civilization? No. no, we don't want to do that. Will it be enough to prevent us from experiencing the consequences <laughs> of where we've been radically out, out of right relationship to nature the last several hundred years? No. no. But will it be enough to help ensure that there will be many of us, millions of us, that do move into the future consciously with big hearts and, and, and a big sense of commitment so that there are the seeds, the seeds are planted so that a healthy human-Earth relationship emerges over the course of the next 50, 100, 150, 200 years. Yes, I do think I can make that difference. I do think we are. And the work you're doing, the work that so many of these colleagues, the, these 55 people that I interviewed as part of the future is calling us to greatness. In fact, anybody watching or listening to this, just put in Google, the future is calling us to greatness. You'll get there. I interviewed 55 of the world's amazing leaders in terms of sustainability, climate change, peak oil, and a sprinkling of spiritual leaders that can help us hold this scary stuff in ways that don't just freak us out, but that inspire us to be in action. And uh, these conversations, about a dozen of them brought me to tears. I was so moved by these Skype conversations with these amazing people. So you can, you can watch them. I think, you know, if you want to, you can watch any of them for free up online. And I think you can get the transcripts for free. But if you want to download them to your computer or your iPod so you can just listen on your own time, I think it's 25 bucks for the entire, all 55 interviews. So it's, mm -hmm. it's really quite affordable. So you would say then that despite the fact that the petrochemical industry or the petroleum industry is massively wealthy and massively powerful and that so many laws and, and things seem so deeply entrenched, so many ways of doing things, that it's a David and Goliath situation maybe where their power and their invincibility are, are a lot flimsier than, than they may appear and uh, they're going to fall. Well, they will fall, but some of them will transform. Some of them, it won't be a matter of falling so much as in the coming, literally, just years and decades, there will be a massive, the, the selection pressure, okay, I'm an evolutionary, I'm an evolutionary theologian, I'm an evolutionary evangelist, and so for me, I'm always viewing through deep time and through our best evolutionary understanding, and the, the, the environmental conditions for the last hundred years benefited the way we've been doing things. We've been living in a wasteful way. We had abundance of energy, more energy we knew what to do with. But those conditions have now shifted. And so now we're living in a different environment. And that environment is now calling forth. So the things that will survive and thrive in the next 50 years are not the same things that survived and thrived in the last 50 years, and then 50 years after that. So the environment is radically changing. And we will see our economics change. I mean, I just last week, I was with a whole group of some of the top ecological economists in the world down in Southern California and other people too. There's this big conference that I was just at. There is some radical rethinking of how we do economics, how we do politics, how we do law, how we do medicine. I mean, law, the idea that, that all rights and privileges go to humans and to human corporations and that humans and human corporations can do anything they want to nature that's insane. We have to have, we have a currently a democracy is a conspiracy against the natural world. We have to have biocracy. That is, we have to allow the voices of the natural world and the natural systems to be reflected in our jurisprudence, in our laws and stuff like that. So we're going to be seeing over the course of the coming decades, 
radical shifts. Some of it will be collapse, some of it will be endings, but some of it will be transformations and evolutions so that whatever form of law exists 50 years from now, whatever form of medicine exists 50 years from now, I mean, the first concern of medicine needs to be the health of the bioregion, the health of the earth and the land and the water and the soil, because without that, you can't have healthy humans in a sick and dying world. So all of our institutions will be shifting and there will be evolutionary drivers that will drive that. And I expect in the coming decades, I agree with John Michael Greer, that there's two major mythologies that most people are stuck in that keep them disempowered, that keep them from being in action. One is the myth of perpetual progress. We don't need to be in action because things are just going to keep better and better. The other is the myth of the apocalypse. We don't need to get engaged. We don't need to be involved because the whole thing's going to hell in a handbasket anyway. The truth of the matter is we're in an evolutionary process and there will be elements of blessing and good and wonderful and there will be difficult, challenging things. So I expect in the next decades, 20% of the worst of humanity to show up. And I expect 80% of the best of humanity to show up. And again, we see this often throughout when we understand the rise and fall of civilizations, that they all rise differently and they all fall the same. And we're now in this contracting process. That's why I love Collapse Now and Avoid the Rush by John Michael Greer and Richard Heinberg's Afterburn, you know, Society After Fossil Fuels. These are people that help us hold the scary stuff in ways that keep us in action, that they avoid these two mythologies so this is a quote from Jim Dodge, who's a bioregionalist uh, really to sustainability. And he says, you know, all the people I talk to say that we have a fighting chance to stop environmental destruction in 50 or 60 years and to turn the culture around in 800 to 1,000 years. And he says, fighting chance translates as long odds, but good company. So he says, so let's just start with the best style and spirit that we can muster, knowing that there's only a functional difference between the root and the flower. They're both a part of the same abiding faith. So dig in, you know? Wow, it's great that you have these quotes memorized like that. I guess you've said them so many times. <laughs> that particular one I actually haven't said in, gosh, probably eight years. Not bad. So when you say that 20% of the worst of humanity show up and 80% of the best of humanity show up, what, what does that mean in terms of the daily news? Are you talking about things well, like we, ISIS we, and uh, terrorist stuff is going to be bubbling up and, and be getting more strident, but at well, the same time, all kinds of great technological innovations and democratic things and women's rights and all that stuff are going to flourish? A little bit of both. I mean, I think we're going to be seeing, again, I think that when you step into the mindset of, you know, fundamentalist ISIS, for example, you realize that what most people want is just a stable life. They want to be able to grow their food and the, do, their, do their things. And the challenge is that we're living in a world, again, of an overshoot. We have overshot the carrying capacity. So there's stressors, there's antagonism, there's all kinds of stressors that we're feeling. And it's not a surprise to me that we see fundamentalist elements of Islam that are violently opposed to the influence that they see that Western culture is having on their youth. And so I'm not condoning or justifying or, you know, saying that that's good, but I am saying that it's not a surprise that we see these kinds of conflicts. And so what I'm meaning a little bit more is that as things in a contracting economy, in a contracting civilization, in a contracting empire, that is where 
of the species enjoys 25% of the world's resources and energy and, and products and stuff like that. That's not no longer sustainable. So as that's all contracting, I think we're going to see people being generous and involved and committed and engaged and working with each other. And this is what I mean by the 80% the of the best of humanity. And we're also going to see self-centeredness, greed, arrogance. That's also going to be there. But I don't see that in the majority. I see that as significantly in the minority because of some of the breakthroughs in consciousness, some of the breakthroughs in awareness, some of the breakthroughs in terms of our heart and our mind and how we think and feel that has occurred over the last century. So I, I think that that's creating a platform where it's not going to be all good. It's not going to be all bad. Again, part of this comes out of just understanding the way past civilizations have risen and fallen. But I think we're going to see that the difference between those and now is we also have a climate that is going to be changing things. I mean, the last 5,000 years, which is where all of these other 24 civilizations rose and fall, didn't have to deal with the kind of extreme climate that we're going to deal with in the next 50 to 100 years. It's interesting, you know, because when there's like a, snow, a big snowstorm or a hurricane or something, a certain faction gets out and starts looting the stores. But a larger faction, and this speaks to the point you just made, becomes very neighborly and compassionate and you know, does stuff to help people that they not, otherwise would never even speak with. Exactly. And that's what I mean by the 28%. And, you know, it may be 10%, 90%, it may be 40%, 60%, who knows. Yeah. But I think far more we're going to see the better side of humanity, the better side of our angels uh, emerge. And we will see a lesson, uh, you know, less of that. But we'll also see some, some real, you know, challenges and greed and the, the dark side of humanity. Yeah. Sometimes when something's existence is threatened, it really starts to fight much more than ever before. So it's like there's a lot of things in our world, a lot of, you know, technologies and corporations and whatnot, which, as I said earlier, I don't think really belong in the kind of sustainable, wholesome world that you're talking about. And so they're going to be, well, I think, well, well you said, you said it actually, I mean, BP could really get into solar power. You know, they, they, yeah. don't, they don't have to. And actually, that's happening. There are some companies that are fighting the installation of solar panels and, uh, you know, see, they see it as a threat to their business model. And there are others who think, hey, this is the future. Let's get on board with this. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, this is where, again, humility is useful, is that in a world that is evolving through the process of emergence, it can't be predicted ahead of time. We cannot know ahead of time. And we will always be surprised by what emerges, especially in a global civilization that is this complex. So anybody who can, who thinks they can say with confidence that this, that, or the other thing is going to be the case 10 years from now, or 20 years from now, or 30 years from now, they don't get emergence. They but there are, the stock market if yeah, good. There, there are certain patterns, though, that we can glean. And that's why I so appreciate the historic wisdom and the ecological wisdom of somebody like a William Catton, or John Michael Greer, or Richard Heinberg, is that they really ground everything they say about the future in that historical understanding. I see that, you know, there will be things that will surprise the hell of us, not just technologically, but socially and every other way. But again, it always, it's not like I'm pro-technology or anti-technology. It's not like I'm pro-progress or anti-progress. It's like there are forms of progress that are pro-future, that is understands of progress that mean that the future will, there will be a healthy future, healthy soil, healthy land, healthy forest. And there are ways of thinking about progress that is only human progress, but nature's getting worse. So that's not progress in any definite sense. There are ways of thinking about technology. There are technologies that will be pro-future, technologies that will enrich the future, that will help us live in closer intimate relationship with nature. 
So those are pro-future technologies. And then there are anti-future technologies, technologies that diminish or destroy or damage the future. Mm. So as with anything, I mean, my great mentor, uh, I mentioned William R. Catton, but he's just recent. My other great mentor is Thomas Berry. And I studied Thomas Berry's work for years. Every time we were anywhere near where he lived until he died, we would go visit him. And he called himself a geologian, not a theologian, but a geologian. And he was sort of the next, he was sort of the next incarnation, if you will, of, of Teilhard de Chardin. He, he took the universe story, the, this, the story of everyone and everything, what's now called big history, physical evolution, biological evolution, and cultural evolution as our first and only globally produced evidence-based creation story as sort of our foundation. And he said something not long before he died. He said that our current predicament and our way into the future can be summarized in three short sentences. The first sentence is that in the 20th century and early 21st century, the glory of the human has become the desolation of the earth, meaning things have gotten better and better for a lot of humans but at the expense of what we depend on, what we rely on, that is nature. So the glory of the human has become the desolation of the earth. And at the expense of a lot of humans, too. Exactly, yeah. exactly. The second sentence is the desolation of the earth is becoming the great shame of the human. Therefore, this is the third sentence, points our way into the future. Therefore, given that, all programs, policies, activities, and institutions must henceforth be judged primarily by the extent to which they inhibit ignore or foster a mutually enhancing human earth relationship so that basically everything we knew from now on, everything that we do and everything we create has to be judged first and foremost by whether it's pro-future or anti-future, whether it leads to our more intimate relationship with the natural world upon which we depend or a more antagonistic or control relationship to that. And I think he just nailed it with that. That's why I say from now on, our theologies, our philosophies, our metaphysics, our beliefs, our laws, our politics, our economics, everything that we do as humans must be judged from now on by whether it is pro-future, whether it leads to a healthy future, two, three, four, five, six, seven generations down the road, or whether it's anti-future, whether it is harming or likely to harm future generations, two, three, four, five, six generations down the road. Sounds great, but it sounds idealistic. I mean, you say it must be judged, but it isn't being judged. How, do we, get, that, how do we get that, to the point where it is being judged? This is where I think a religion has been asleep at the wheel. Religion has been failing in its most fundamental task, which is helping us live in right relationship to primary reality. And part of that is because at least the religions in the West have had this otherworldly orientation. So that's why I call these triple idolatries. Idolatry of the written word, idolatry of the otherworldly, and idolatry of beliefs have caused religion to be ignoring God's evidential revelation. Let me speak in religious language. We've been blind and deaf to what God's been revealing for 500 years through evidence. As Thomas Berry says, we've been spiritually autistic. We don't listen to the rivers. We don't listen to the wind. We don't listen to the climate. And what are those realities telling us about how we need to live our lives? We thought God spoke to us in the distant past in these old books. And we thought where God resided was not in the forest, in the soil, in the land. We thought God resided only outside nature. So we thought we could treat nature however the hell we wanted because our true home was somewhere else when we died anyway. So we've been spiritually autistic. And so we've not developed an economy that is pro-future. In fact, almost everything about our economy and our ways of doing law are anti-future. That's why the biggest task of the next 
coming decades is how do we shift those? How do we transform those? How do we evolve those in ways that help us become more intimate with nature? And that's where humility and that's where ecological wisdom of the kind that William Catton talks about in his book Overshoot and Richard Heinberg in, in Afterburn are absolutely essential. We have to humble ourselves and learn from God's word as revealed through evidence that our understanding of a theology includes ecology and our understanding of God isn't just some supernatural being outside time and nature, but as a sacred proper name, a personification of reality, what's real, whether we believe it or not. And we're part of that. We're an expression of that. So what's going to get us to do that? Chaos. Oh, chaos. The shit's going to hit the fan and that's what's going to catalyze it. That's so we're what, gonna it's gonna one of the things. smacked and that's going to... Yeah. People, again, when you understand the history of all complex civilizations, one of the things you realize is that when things are going well or when people can convince themselves that things are going well, there's no motivation for any major change. It's a status quo. It's only when the poop hits the fan, when the things become difficult, when things become challenging, that some of that denial begins to break down. And the more challenging things get, finally, there's finally a willingness to make the kinds of changes that everybody kind of knew you had to make anyway, but there was too much vested interest among powerful entities. So John Michael Greer, for example, just in his last five blog posts on the Archdrewd Report, had a series on the five major stages in collapse, going from the era of pretense to the era of impact and this sort of thing. I, I don't remember all five off the top of my head, but his latest series is related to that. And so I think that we can trust that there are challenging things coming down the pike and that we, while they may be challenging, while there may be suffering, there surely will be difficulty. It will also be the absolutely essential thing. I sometimes say we cannot avoid the great reckoning. The great reckoning is where humanity has been out of right relationship to reality, whether you use divine or secular language for that. We've been out of right relationship to reality and we're now about to experience really difficult, challenging consequences. But it's also the great homecoming, the prodigal species coming home to reality, to God. And so there's good news and bad news. And I tend to focus on the good news because I think the bad news is actually going to catalyze uh, and force us to make the changes that we had to make anyway. And I think the whole body of life is rooting for us. I think I see, this is again mythic, but I see the entire body of life rooting for us to make this change. Beautiful. That's so well put. And in the way you just put it, the bad news is actually part of the good news. It's just the dark side of the good news, in a way. So that, that I think, gives hope to people who feel like the government is so screwed up and we're never going to get them to change and they can't even agree on anything and no, nothing's getting done and we're subsidizing the oil industry. And, you know. and all that's real. And that's why I think we need a popular movement. I think I'm, I'm one of those people that think that we will see an activist community, a you know, you could call it revolutionary, but mostly nonviolent, I, I expect, revolutionary movement that will make the 1960s look puny in comparison. But again, it's not a matter of making the business community wrong because I think there's a hell of a lot of businesses and business leaders who get this. That's why Tom Friedman says, if you only read one book on climate change, make it Paul Gilding's book, The Great Disruption. Paul Gilding, uh, his book, The Great Disruption, the, the subtitle is Why the Climate Crisis Will Bring on the End of Shopping and the Birth of a New World. Hmm. And he sees the business community being at the forefront of the transformations. And we're this close. As soon as the dam of denial breaks, 
which could happen this year, next year, next year, but it won't, it's not gonna be much further than three years out at most. Once that dam of denial breaks, the floodwaters are unstoppable. And again, I think this emergence sense, we will see 20% of stupid, inane stuff, but we're gonna see 80% of stuff that's just gonna blow our minds. And big social changes can happen quite unexpectedly and, and abruptly. And I mean, look at the fall of the Berlin Wall, for instance, or the collapse of the Soviet Union. I mean, no one really saw those things coming. And boom, overnight, they came. And it doesn't always usher in everything good. There are challenges also that got ushered in. I mean, you look sure. at- you Arab know, Spring. Exactly. But, but I do think that this is an exciting time to be alive as long as we're awake, as long as we're, we, yeah. we don't just stay in denial, but we stay awake. This is why Joanna Macy is another one of my great mentors. Joanna Macy says, if we hold the pain of the world in our hearts and express it to others, we then experience our profound interconnectedness with life. And yes, our hearts break, but they break open with compassion and that compassion can unite us. So even though I don't have a copy of it to show, I also highly recommend Joanna Macy's book, Active Hope, How to Face the Mess We're In Without Going Crazy. She's a Buddhist, as you know. And uh, active hope, how to face the mess we're in without going crazy, is, is really allows us to stay present to the challenges, to present to the chaos, present to the difficulties, but from a place of finding out where, where our joy and the world's needs can intersect so that we can be a blessing. But in the, in the same process of us being a blessing to others, we are also blessed in that process. I just need to retire so I can start reading all these books you recommend. Ah! <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> I have a new book every week because I have a new guest every week. Oh, and I, and oh. then there's so many. I, my eyes are bigger than my stomach. You know, There's just so many wonderful things to consume in this way. Okay, now I have two pages of notes here of questions I might ask you in, in an interview that, um, that you sent to me, actually. And I think we've probably covered most I of them. I think probably we've covered but most of them. Yeah. Is there anything we haven't covered you know, without even looking at your notes? Is there anything scanning back over the course of this conversation Things that are dear to your heart, that are important, that you'd like people to hear that we didn't touch upon. Well, just that I would encourage everybody to do this exercise. I just alluded to it, but you know, take a piece of paper, draw a line down the middle, so you've got two columns. Mm -hmm. And on the one side, list all the activities, the projects, the things that you're good at, the things you love to do, the things that light you up, that give you joy, that give you a sense of energy and fulfillment and happiness things that you're good or that other people tell you that you're good at or whatever. Just list all that. And at the top of that list, you put my great joy. And then on the other side of the paper, list all the things that you're aware of in your community or in your world where you feel the world's needs. Not just where you intellectually know about it, but where do you feel it? Where do you feel upset, frustrated, fearful, and especially where do you feel compassion? Where does your heart just break over something that's happening in your community or in the world? And you list all that. So you get two lists, my great joy and the world's great needs or my community's great needs. And then you just pay attention to your heart. You don't even have to call it prayer or meditation if you don't want to. Just call it, pay attention to this part of your body. And what you're trying to do is play mix and match. Like where are the intersections between what lights you up, what gives you joy, what gives you energy and what the world's needs are or your community's needs or the future's needs as you feel them. And those places of intersection where your joy and the world's needs or your joy and the future's needs intersect, that's your calling. That's your mission. That's your vocation at this time in your life. Whether you can make money out of it or not is irrelevant. It's finding those places where you can be a blessing in a way that blesses you. And in addition to that, I would say just, you know, it's kind of like John Michael Greer, collapse now and avoid the rush. Like use less energy, drive less, fly less, 
eat lower on the food chain. Begin to live your life or continue, like take it to the next steps where you can feel good about how you're living. And frankly, are you a vegetarian? I was a vegetarian for four years. I now eat some meat, but I always try to get it organic and not support factory farms and that sort of thing. Sure. Because just because just I'm told by some people that the meat industry is, is worse for the environment even than the, the petroleum industry. The agricultural industry yeah. as a whole, the way yeah. we, but yes, the meat industry, I mean, in terms of the amount of water that's used, yes, absolutely. All that stuff. So, you know, eat a more plant-based diet, whether you become a strict vegetarian or vegan is another thing, yeah. but at least reduce that. And try not to support factory farms. Yeah, sorry to interrupt, but you were, you but, were on, but, in the but get to know get to know people on farms. I mean, when the Great Depression happened, there were still a lot of people that could move back to the family farm. That's not the case now. And so do the work of preparation so that when the difficult times happen, if we go through another economic shockwave like 2008 or worse, which is very possible, have a sense of security that how you will eat and live is such that if you don't have much income or have no income, get to know your neighbors, get to know people on farms, and those build trust and community with others who share your values such that when difficult times come, you're not freaking out, you've prepared for that so that you can be a blessing to others, so you can be a blessing to those who are freaking out, who don't know what to do. So that's, yeah, that would be the last thing I would say is, is um, know that the tough times coming down the pike are not necessarily bad from God's perspective, from life's perspective, and from the body of life's perspective, they may be really, really good. And just find those places where you can be a participant in what life is doing in a pro-future way. That's going to nourish your soul, no matter what your religion or metaphysics or philosophy. Fantastic. Well, I really appreciate what you're doing. I appreciate your enthusiasm and your energy and you know, Thanks, Rick. Well, I appreciate the work you're doing. I mean, these conversations can be inspiring to a lot of people. So uh, just a, a deep bow of gratitude to your work. With, well, uh, thank you. Us. We'll be in touch. I'd love to meet you in person someday. And I don't know. We'll see what happens. But I'm, I'm definitely going to follow. I've subscribed to all three of your blogs. I mean, not your blogs, your podcasts. Uh-huh. And downloaded all the episodes. So I'm going to start listening to those. And cool. um you know, got to read all these books you recommended. So yeah. I, I, I just love. Well, again, the most important one of all is this one: Overshoot. Catton Overshoot. All right, that'll be first. I really appreciate having had you on the show. I think listeners are going to appreciate it. It's it's a little different than some of the conversations I've had, but that's good. I think Absolutely. you know people get tired of hearing the same old thing. Well, first of all, before I run through some general points. Um, terms of how people can connect with you I'll, I'll obviously be linking to your website and anything else is there anything else you want to say that in terms of how people what you want them to read what you want them to do? Well, already, uh, so basically if people want to communicate with me the best way is probably via email michael at thank god for evolution.com michael at thank god for evolution.com and um our main websites are thegreatstory.org mm-hmm thegreatstory.org, and michaeldowd.org. So just either one of those. Good. And I will be linking to those from your page on, on batgap.com so people can right. get in touch. And I'll link to your book on Amazon and all that. Cool. And you've got a new book in the works. So Yep, got a new book in the works, but it'll be another six, eight, ten months before right. it's out. Let me know when it comes out so I can add a link to it. So let me make some general concluding remarks. I've been speaking with Reverend Michael Dowd. And uh, you know a lot about him by now, so I won't reiterate what he's about. But um, this show is about conversations with spiritually awakening people. 
And I believe, as Michael has beautifully explained, we live in a spiritually awakening culture, and that, that doesn't just mean abstract metaphysical awakening. It means all sorts of ramifications in terms of changes we're going to see in the world. If you found this conversation interesting and would like to check out other ones, I do a new one every week, and I've done nearly 300, so go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P. Check out the past interviews menu. The uh, future interviews menu includes all the ones that we have scheduled so far. There are several other things you can do. You can sign up to be notified by email each time a new one's posted. You'll see a link for that. There's a podcast that you can sign up for, and we're having some technical difficulties with it, but some people are still signing up successfully and getting it every week, so we're still working on making it work properly for everyone. There's the donate button that I mentioned in the beginning, critical for our being able to do this. I think that just about covers it. So thanks for listening or watching, and we will see you next week.